Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Next week is the last week of Isaiah. It doesn't feel like we're that close because we have 12 chapters to go. Uh, But we are. Two chapters today, 10 next week. Next week is going to be epic. Uh, 10 chapters in a week. Uh, It's all about uh, the the promises of Isaiah that haven't yet happened. So we've seen a heap of promises or, or prophecies from Isaiah that have, uh, were happening in the time that he was alive. Heaps that happened shortly after his death. Heaps that happened about a hundred or so years after he died. And then over the last couple of weeks, as we've looked through the servant songs, um, I mean, even really from chapter 40, you see the vague allusions to the Messiah in the first 35 chapters start to become really stark predictions of this suffering servant who is to come, uh, really, in a sense, culminating in chapter 53 last week, one of the most famous chapters of any piece of literature in the history of the world, uh, really explicitly foreshadowing Jesus' coming. And 700 years later, we see all of those promises in 53 really radically, amazingly fulfilled in, in Jesus, in Christ. And then this week, we start to see, what does this mean? So obviously, remember, Isaiah primarily written for the people in Isaiah's time when he was telling them of the judgment that's coming, and then also written to the people in that um, time of exile, and then immediately after exile, those people who are going to come back into Jerusalem, out of Babylon, out of exile, and that's really where, we're, where we are today. We're in chapter 54 in particular, written to these people who are coming back, still idolatrous, still rebellious, still chasing down other things not, not of God. And yet, and yet we see, especially over the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll see everything that God was doing, all, all of this whole thing was pointing towards Jesus who was to come. We saw God lamenting at least twice, saying, Israel and Judah and Jerusalem, the nations were supposed to come to you to receive blessings, supposed to look to you for their hope and to, to anchor their, um, their, their hope in. And yet they're coming to you instead to come and conquer you and devour you. But now, in chapter 54, in particular, chapter 55, he starts to say it's, it's different now. Uh, the land has had its 70-year Sabbath from you, you vile and wicked and rebellious people, and now uh, God is coming back to be the Saviour. Chapter 55, which we're looking at today as well, it's written to those people in, in post-exile for sure, but also written to us, written to the people who would benefit from the nations coming to Jerusalem. Well, the Jerusalem it's speaking of, which we'll see soon, is not, not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem and the one who came from heaven, uh, who we saw last week. Man, it's a really amazing piece of scripture that we're about to look at today. Uh, some very, very famous uh, passages in these chapters. Uh, very well-worn, super misused, super misappropriated and butchered by well-meaning preachers and friends. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. Key is, um, everything has radically changed now that we've met the Messiah. This last chapter. We met Jesus. Met this one who's going to come. Going to come and suffer. Going to be crushed on your behalf. He's going to come with 
love and with mercy and bear your ultimate burdens. And now with uh, his readers having Messiah firmly in view, Isaiah gets to telling them about what it means for them now that they're coming out of exile. Uh, They're coming out of exile and now they have this beautiful promise that not only are they coming back to the land, going back to Jerusalem, but that a better Jerusalem is coming. That they've had Cyrus, King Cyrus, who has been God's anointed one, God's Messiah, you know, small M Messiah, for this moment, releasing them from their captive, but that the capital M Messiah is coming. All a foreshadowing of what God is doing and is about to do. And even for us, the prophecy continuing to be fulfilled in God's work in building his church, which is what we'll see uh, in these chapters as well. Man, it's amazing. And I put it to you. Uh, in fact, to really understand what's going on in these chapters, uh, I want to I kind of frame it like this. I put it to you that you are not thirsty enough. You're not thirsty enough. I realize in the last couple of years, being thirsty has come to mean something uh, new and novel that I didn't mean back in the day. But, it, but even including that meaning, you're not thirsty enough. Uh, uh, myself and um, 18 others from City Light Church, we just got back from the Philippines this week, and it was amazing. And in a couple of weeks' time, on the 8th, uh, we're going to give you a bit of a presentation of what we learned and what God did in us and through us and uh, more opportunities for partnership there, gospel work in the Philippines. But i tell you what, <clears throat> went from like temperatures in the mid-teens over here to mid-30s over there. Super dry here, although we're in winter, and like 95, 98% humidity on some days over there. I generally run pretty warm as it is, uh, and so not a lot of buffer um, you know, when it gets really hot uh, for overheating. And so I'll tell you what, we couldn't drink any of the water, like the readily available water. We're on an island, surrounded by water, with creeks running through the water, and uh, running through the island, uh, rivers running through the island. Everywhere we went, people offering us water, could not drink any of the water. And those of us who did drink the water had really rough nights and next days, not myself included, thank you, thankfully, and did not subsequently drink that local water. But what it meant was, we, we had, I had especially, uh, this great need for water. And because we were drinking only bottled water, it was easy to track how much water I was drinking. And so some days, it'd be between three and five litres of water from just surviving. I, I was doing no exercise. I mean, sure, we were walking everywhere. That was, that was pretty epic uh, in the you know, 30-something degree, 99% humidity uh, temperature, you know, weather. <clears throat> But, uh, you know, five litres of water on some days, plus other water that, you know, was just half bottles and things like that. Because um, if I didn't, I would have died, basically. And the whole time, uh, wherever we were, in every situation, the, the one, like, ongoing thing that was happening in my mind was, you've got to get more water. Uh, and my wife actually pointed this out to me, and I, I recognise it as well. We, you know, we might go to the toilet in the morning and the evening, but during the day, hardly anybody went to the toilet because you just sweated everything out. Sweat out, breathed out, walked out, uh, whatever it was, meant our bodies needed water. We cra- I craved water. I really did. To the point where first bottle of water, refreshing. Really refreshing. Se- second bottle of water, still refreshing. But the third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh bottles of water... It was no longer refreshing. It was actually laborious to drink the water. But my body kept crying out, you need 
water or you're going to die. I put it to you, you're not thirsty enough. The heat increased my thirst. The extra physical activity increased my thirst. Um, yeah, my body like craved water like I'd die without it because I would have died without it. Um, King David, in one of his Psalms, he talks about this same kind of thirst. He says, as the deer pants after water, so my soul longs after you. Speaking of, of God and his longing to be with God. They're saying, uh, you know how the, the deer, where, which may not have like readily, readily available water sources, out escaping from predators uh, and trying to find its own food and it's walking about, uh, finally stumbles upon water or in its search for water is, is thirsty. Um, thirst is starving for this water. It's panting after the water. And so David says, in that same kind of way, uh, my soul is thirsting after you. My soul longs for you. He hears desperation in his voice. This is the same kind of thirst that Isaiah is talking about here in this passage. Same kind of thirst I want to highlight to you tonight. As I say again, I don't think that you're thirsty enough. And I say that um, collectively. We, why don't think we thirst enough? What do I mean? Chapter 55 starts like this. Uh, it starts, Come, everyone who is thirsty, everyone, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Say, come to you who thirst. It's on offer. It's right here. Here is the water. You have, your, your, in my Philippines case, body was craving and crying out and sometimes screaming at me, you need to get water now. Otherwise, like, bad stuff is going to happen if you don't get water right now. You've got you to get water. And God here is saying, through the prophet Isaiah, come, everyone who is thirsty, if you have a thirst, the water is here and it's on offer and it's free for you. The thing that you're body is crying out for, um, the thing your soul craves, what you desperately need just to survive is right here for the taking if you would come. This is how he starts this chapter. Come. You might be thirsty because you know your sin and you are longing to have that sin dealt with. You feel like, I'm, I know, I'm just not good enough. Uh, we had some baptisms this morning um, down at the bay and one of the testimonies that was shared. Um, some women said, <clears throat> I just I found it so hard to reach out to God because if God really knew me, how could he possibly really love me? And I'm like, man, so many people feel the same way, have the same thirst. Man, if people knew who I really was, they would run. If they knew the thoughts went through my mind, they would abandon me. If they knew what not even necessarily what I had done, if I knew what I was capable of, I, w- I would have nobody and start to attribute these same uh, like apprehensions or fears of rejection to God and become thirsty for like real relationship, but so fearful of laying down your like veil and the, the fake you that you have constructed so that you never have to be rejected. But you, 
You're preventing people from really knowing you and preventing that thirst from actually ever being quenched. Because if you sin, you know you sin. I'm not here to placate you and say, no, no, you're not really that bad. But I'm here to say that God does know you and he still says, come, you who are thirsty. Everyone. Not some people, not people who qualify, not people who are good enough, not people who are at a certain position or um, prominence or demographic or social status or who have accomplished a certain amount. Come everybody who thirsts. What is the prerequisite for coming? It's that you're thirsty. Maybe you have a thirst for meaning. Just going through life, uh, you know, day by day or week by week, months blur into months. You don't really feel like you're going anywhere or that you've been anywhere or that you've done anything. Maybe you're thirsty for belonging. Um, You have lots and lots of people, maybe in your life who you know a little bit. Most of your relationships are actually online and not face-to-face, maybe for those same reasons before of if they, the more they get to know me, the less they're going to like me. You've got this thirst for belonging. Maybe you've got a dryness of spirit. Actually, you're just not feeling it. We're singing about joy. Sing about joy. And you see other people, and you're like, they look really like, genuinely joyful. I don't feel that. You have this thirst of, of dryness, of parchedness. You know, like... Um, uh, South Australia at the end of summer, super dry, super brown, uh, cracks everywhere. And if you get one of the summer rains, you think, wow, this is amazing. And it floods up because the ground is so dry. And then as if in an instant, everything is gone because the ground is so dry and so thirsty, it absorbs it all and it still looks just as dry as it was before. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you're hoping uh, you come to church like gatherings like this and you're hoping... Each week, maybe that's going to be the thing that you get, which is going to change everything for you. You're going to hear something that's going to change everything for you. You're not feeling it. You really want to. You really genuinely want that thirst quenched, but you don't see a solution. You might have tried a heap of different things or, um, I don't know, pursued all kinds of different ends to have that thirst quenched, but you're still dry. Uh, to all of us, God says, come. Jesus, actually, he repeats the same thing. John 4, standing with the woman in the world. He says, everyone, again, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. So she, she had thirst. She knew what it was like. If you know the story of the woman at the well, John 4, <clears throat> she had been through multiple husbands, multiple romantic relationships and partners, unable to quench the thirst she had for genuine relationship with someone who would genuinely love her. Jesus says to her, you've had four husbands, the man you're with at the moment is not your husband. I just, he reads her, like a book. he points out to her, where her thirst is coming from, and he says, but if you come to me, I'll give you the water that you really need. I'll give you the water that you drink it, uh, you will never thirst again. Not only that, uh, it'll well up in a never-ending stream that leads to eternal life, wells up with eternal life. This is the same water that Isaiah is referring to, same water that Jesus is referring to here. John 7 as well, he says the same thing. 
Come, everyone. Are you thirsty? It's on offer. If you just acknowledge your thirst, you know, sometimes, uh, for me at least, I'm guilty of this, uh, where I will be thirsty, but I'll also be sleepy, and I might be sleepy because I'm dehydrated, but then I will keep myself awake by drinking caffeine, which is a diuretic and makes you more thirsty. So I will go and I'll pursue something which gives me a little band-aid fix, but ultimately is actually working against the quenching of the thirst, which is the problem in the first place. You understanding where I'm going with this? Then we do this. <laughs> we go uh, searching for something to satisfy us, uh, even though we, if you've, if you've read it or if you've heard it, you hear God throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, saying, come to me, I'll give you the water that, that will quench your thirst forever. You'll never thirst again. And we still run off after these other quick fixes and quick things. He, he says, don't just come and get what you need to live, not just the water, not just that thing that you so desperately need, but if we go on to the next verse, you'll also get the choicest wine and milk. Milk, you can, you can live on water for a, a period of time. I don't know if you've done uh, like multiple day fasts. You can go for many days without food. Uh, you can't go for many days without water. But even if you just drink water, there will come a time at which you will perish if all you have is the water. And what uh, Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah here is, not only we have the, the, the quenching of your thirst, what you desperately need, the forgiveness of your sin, you'll also be sustained by milk, which you can live on. Even babies live on milk. And not only, not only enough for, of what you desperately need, which is your water, and what will uh, sustain you with the milk, but also what you can celebrate with uh, in the wine. Such excesses of the grace with our Father. He's just spent all of chapter 54 uh, showing those who have come out of exile that even though they're destitute like a, a widow or an abandoned wife is, is how he relates them. They've been banged up, barren. Um, they've been beat down by their circumstance. They've been oppressed by multiple different rulers. They've been a victim of their own bad choices, oppressive surroundings, um, of their own idolatry. Um, all these kinds of things. He says, even though this is who you are, I'm going to make you beautiful. They start off battered and beat down. They end up beautiful, redeemed and saved. No longer barren, no longer abandoned, but beautiful and fruitful, protected, called, vindicated, given an inheritance and loved with this wonderful love of a future with God. This is what he says to them in, in chapter 54. He says, rejoice, childless one. Rejoice, childless one. In the day of Isaiah, no childless man or woman would be rejoicing. They would see that as God's judgment upon them, as God having abandoned them, that they had no kids. In fact, it was a death sentence. If you had no like, progeny, you had no one to look after you in your old age, they had no superannuation funds or retirement villages or safety, like government safety nets or anything like that. If you had no kids... You had no future. <clears throat> Rejoice, childless one, who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout. Have you ever burst into song? You only burst into song when something immediately and impressively 
amazing happens all at once. Like it, it, there isn't something that you already have and you've had it for a long time and then all of a sudden you just burst into song. You might, you might break into song, but to burst into song means something has like welled up within you, something amazing. Burst into song and shout, you have not been in labor. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman, says Yahweh. Enlarge the side of your tent and let your tent curtains be stretched out. He's saying uh, to the ones who have been fruitless in their exile, who thought they had no future, who thought they had been abandoned by their husband, by God. He's saying to you, uh, you, are more, you will be more blessed than those who have lots and lots of children. Uh, in fact, this is what's going to happen. You need to extend your tents. You need to like, put on a bunch of extensions on your house. Add a couple of bathrooms. Uh, extend the, the, the courts. He goes on and says, do not hold back. Don't hold back. Be lavish because of how many people are going to be in your family. Lengthen your ropes. Drive your pegs deep. For you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will dispossess nations and inhabit the desolate cities. So again, these people in exile, uh, wondering if they have any future at all, and God is saying to them, not only do you have a future, but oh my goodness, you feel barren and abandoned and beat down and oppressed, uh, you will have more children than she who has many children. He's talking about us. He's talking about the engrafting of the Gentiles. He's spoken about Messiah in, in the very previous, like very previous chapter. And he's saying, because of Jesus, because of what is coming, because of what I'm going to do through you, and through Jesus who comes through you, you will have all of these nations coming to you and coming from you uh, into this new family, into your family. For you will forget the shame of your youth. Oh, sorry. So do not be afraid. For you will not be put to shame. Don't be humiliated, for you won't be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will no longer remember the disgrace of your widowhood. Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is Yahweh of armies. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of the whole earth. For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and wounded in spirit, a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. I deserted you for a brief moment, but I will take you back with abundant compassion. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but I will have compassion on you with everlasting love, says Yahweh your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the water of Noah would never flood the earth again. So I've sworn that I will not be angry with you or rebuke you. Here he's had this Um, adulterous wife, running after other idols, other people, uh, not secretly, not hiding um, her shame under the veil of darkness, but just brazenly, brazenly walking after pursuing other love interests. And God um, refines these people and he says, I, I won't. I haven't abandoned you. Um, I've refined you and now I'm redeeming you. I'm bringing you back. Um, and why does he say he's doing it? Not because they've changed. Not because they're better. Not because they're lovely. Not because you know, she took her glasses off. Oh, she was beautiful the whole time. Uh, none of these kinds of things. 
but because of his own compassion, because of his own love. He comes and does these things. Verse 10, Though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you. My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Yahweh. Poor Jerusalem, storm-tossed and not comforted. I will set your stones in black mortar and lay your foundations in precious gems. I'll make your fortifications out of rubies and your gates out of sparkling stones and your walls out of precious stones. Then all your children will be taught by Yahweh. Their prosperity will be great and you will be established on a foundation of righteousness. What does it look like to be established on a foundation of righteousness? God is saying, I will love you with a never-ending love. Like It's like Noah. Remember Noah when I flooded the earth and then I hung up my war bow in the sky? promising you that I will never judge you like that again, saying it's the, same, it's the same as like that, where I didn't flood the earth like before, but I certainly disciplined a rebellious children in, in this example, but I won't do that again like this. So you have nothing but love from me from now. And I, I will rebuild Jerusalem, uh, which I love, with the most choice gems, it'll be beautiful once again. And the foundation will be a foundation of righteousness coming from God himself. And he's saying, and I will establish, establish you on that foundation. Uh, again, we're in the Philippines. We went to some pretty precariously perched dwellings. Uh, one, we had to be like, we went on these little boats, I guess you would call them, floating devices, uh, maybe more apt, uh, taking you out through essentially sewage uh, to these rusty, rickety houses. And uh, you look through the floorboards and uh, you see fish because it's over water. And when too many people are sitting on one side of the thing, the house starts to... I'm like, how is this? Like, where is the OHNS? But anyway, but, but, here, but here, God is saying, uh, you're established on my foundation. There's no no shaking that foundation. Nothing can happen. You're completely secure. You're established. You're set up on the foundation of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. Messiah's righteousness. Not your own goodness. Not your own excellence. Not your own um, amazing pursuits of worthwhile endeavors on Jesus' righteousness. You are established. You'll be far from oppression. You'll certainly not be afraid. You'll be far from terror. It will certainly not come near you. If anyone attacks you, it's not from me. Whoever attacks you will fall before you. Look, I've created the craftsman who blows on the charcoal fire and produces a weapon suitable for its task. And I've created the destroyer to cause havoc. No weapon formed against you will succeed and you will refute any accusation raised against you in court This is the heritage of Yahweh's servants and their vindication is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. Here are these wonderful promises from God. Paul, uh, uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 4 that when Isaiah is um, speaking for God here, he's not talking about the Jerusalem that the Israelites were going to come back to. He's talking about the Jerusalem that's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Saying all these promises are to come and for us as well. Not just for the people coming out of exile back into Jerusalem. This is for all we who have been brought into the family of God upon the righteous foundation of Christ. What phenomenal promises for us. 
What's the prerequisite? It's a thirst. Back to verse, uh, chapter 55. It says, Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. He's saying you're thirsty and yet you're chasing after things that won't satisfy you. In fact, you are laboring after them. You're working really, really hard. You're spending your very self on them. The wages of your labor are spent on things that can't satisfy you. God is even maybe frustrated here saying, why would you do that when the table is set and the choicest of foods are here for you and the water that will satisfy is free? What, what are you doing? What are you thinking? We're chasing after things that won't satisfy us, can't save us, and certainly won't satisfy a holy and just God. He wants to establish us on the foundation of Christ. Uh, in a city that doesn't end, a city that no, no weapon can be formed against and succeed. Verse 3, he says, pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. My fear is because we're not thirsty enough, because we don't see our sin really, because, and even if we do sin, or we do see our sin, we definitely sin, because we don't necessarily um, appreciate the depths of our sin and the grief our sin and idolatry causes God, um, it doesn't lead us to thirst for the salvation that only comes from God. Because we don't see it as a sickness that needs remedy. We see it as something we can sweep under a rug or try to mitigate or behavior modify our way out of. Or we try to go, well, I know I'm doing all these good things over here, so that kind of outweighs the bad. We start to have this karmic view, which is foolishness. We don't we don't pay attention, we don't listen because we don't see, we are almost dying of thirst. We don't feel thirsty, we don't see our thirst. Here's what he says. <clears throat> listen so that you will live. I'll make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness of David since I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples so that you will summon a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you will run to you. For Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. Now talking to the people coming out of Babylon back into Jerusalem, he's saying, I have glorified you because I am coming to you. And through you, all people from all different kinds of nations and tribes and languages will come into the new Jerusalem that I'm creating. He says this wonderful promise. And he's saying, I'll... I have glorified you. What a phenomenal promise to you that all nations will be blessed through you. It's the same promise he gave to Abraham. The same promise he gave to Adam. Verse 6, So seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. He says, don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, I'll just try these other things as well. Don't say, well, I'm not really that bad. If I ever do something that's seriously depraved, then I'll come back 
and I'll say, God, I say, don't negotiate. Don't try to like negotiate for a better deal as if that were even possible with the, the vast riches of God's grace. It says, no, no, instead, verse 7, let the wicked one, that's all of us, let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh so he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. Uh, th- this comes back to right at the very beginning when he says, come everyone, everyone who thirsts. God does not, will not withhold his grace from you when you come. He won't do it. He, he wants to. He, he longs to lavishly pour out the riches of his grace upon you. Scripture tells us this. He wants to do that. Don't wait. Don't sit there in your thirst when the table is set and the water is free. Abandon your wicked ways, your sinful thoughts. Return to the Lord so he may have compassion on you. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways. This is Yahweh's declaration. As far as Sorry, for as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. And we know from Chapter 53 from New Testament, the word did come down. The word did accomplish what he set out to do. The word did please the Father. And then the word returned to the Father. Because like John 1.14 says, the word became flesh into one among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Same Messiah, Isaiah 53 is talking about. Same Messiah that John is talking about. Same word that came from God in flesh. He did not return to him without accomplishing his task, which was to establish you in righteousness. For you to see your own wickedness and respond to your thirst by going to the one who gives freely that water which will, once drunk, mean you never thirst again. What did he accomplish for us? He goes on and says, verse 12, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you. Now they're the ones breaking into singing. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Uh, when I was a young kid growing up in the 80s, I used to sing this song a lot. You'll go out with joy, led, uh, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. Uh, and then we'll you know, we'll clap our hands with the trees. It was awesome. And I always thought as a kid, what the heck does that mean? The trees of the fields will clap their hands. The trees of the fields will clap their hands. Trees of the fields will clap their hands as you go out with joy. That was a song. 
and we would clap our hands. And I was thinking, the mountains are singing. Uh, I mean, the hills are alive. Um, what a rip-off. Uh, and, the, and the trees are clapping their hands. Uh, I, mean, I mean, and they are. And they are. See, the, the trees are doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, the mountains are doing what they're supposed to do. They are there to the glory of God. Um, the stars in the sky, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, the birds in the air, tweeting and doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, all bringing glory to God. It says, and we have stopped doing that, um, but we'll start doing that. Jesus is um, walking into Jerusalem. People laying down their coats and, and tree branches before him and, and yelling praise to him, saying, we're saved, we're saved. And save us, save us. Saying, Hosanna. And some people come to him and say, you've got to stop these people from worshipping you as if you are worthy of worship. And he says, if they don't, uh, see these rocks, they're going to start crying out because I am worthy of the same worship. Uh, and the rocks are doing what they're supposed to do. Is our invitation to do what we're supposed to do. What we're made for. Uh, to be truly who you are made to be. And that is to be in relationship with God, not, no longer thirsty, uh, but satisfied in Christ. Satiated. Uh, I think it's one of the most undervalued um, modes of being in our culture is being satisfied and being content. Uh, and what he's saying is, actually, we can't do that except, ultimately, we can't do that except in Christ. And he goes on, instead of a thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. So all the while, he's still foreshadowing this new Jerusalem that's going to come, this perfect city where we're going to be with Jesus. But what he's also saying is, when you know, when you know him, when you're set upon that righteous foundation, not only is this a future promise, but this is an internal proph- a prophecy as well, that uh, those thorn bushes that you have in your, in your mind, in your heart, those, those ways that you have had thirst, um, unsatisfied before, instead of those briars, you now have peace. So it's a present reality. It's not just that someday in the future you will have joy. I know we actually just sang that. When, you know, when Christ shall come, we shall have acclamation. Then, uh, you know, what joy shall fill my heart. But actually, the promise of Isaiah is that now that joy shall fill our heart. It's not just the future. Certainly there'll be some culmination coming, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, but don't overlook the joy, the present joy of knowing Jesus, who has dealt with all of your sins, dealt with all of your rebellion, who has made it possible for you to have all of those thirsts satisfied in him. This will stand as a monument for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. That's the end of the passage. Again, talking about the everlasting city, but also talking about you, new creations. Everlasting monuments to what God has done. Champions and trophies of grace. That you know, and I know how unlovely I am, but God has made me lovely. I know how unremarkable and 
uh, how unbeautiful I am, but God has made me beautiful. Not because suddenly I have become good or done anything worthwhile, but because he has established me on the foundation of the righteousness of Christ. Not my own righteousness, not my own foundation. That would be worse than that Filipino uh, rust house. But on the sure foundation of Christ. Man, it's, it's phenomenal. So the question is again, are you thirsty? Do you hear this kind of joy and peace and think, I don't have that? Like, I know Jesus. I know I'm saved. But oh, man, I still have that thirst. I put it to you. It's, I don't think it's a factor of you don't have enough of what you need. I think it's a factor of you don't understand your thirst enough. I should think it's not about um, trying to build yourself up in how good you are, how, how excellent you are, or of course God loves you, or try to do the self-esteem G up. But the more you understand how sinful you were, the more you appreciate and understand just what God purchased when he paid for you when he hung on that cross. When you know your thirst, you recognize that pure life-giving water, uh, the joy that comes from having it, and to know that that well never runs dry. Now, we need to meditate on these things, our own sin, our own enmity with God, and also God in his glory, in his holiness, in his wrath, and also his love and what he's done for us. And when we grasp these two things in whatever fullness of, of measure that we can handle, uh, really that's when we find our satisfaction. Really, really, I truly believe that. When we meditate on these things. And what is, what is um, Isaiah Levis? He says, Seek the Lord, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call to him while he's near. Because he's near. And although you may feel far from him or far from this joy, far from this satisfaction or far from this peace, it's so near. I promise you it's near. It's it's an offer and it's freely available to you. Let go, he says. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. For us, this is letting go of those things uh, which we're looking to to satisfy us, which we're looking to to fill us or fulfill us. Um, most of the time, I feel, in our culture, uh, it's much more about incorrect like order of priorities than it is about really not knowing what to do. And we're not willing to let go of the things which we find momentarily fulfilling or satisfying and we bump down in order of priority the thing which we know will truly satisfy. Um, all we need to do really is recognize our thirst and come to the one who will satisfy us to where we never thirst again. Let's pray together. Father, um, I, just, I mean, I, I say in full knowledge that there are people here. Uh, who really do have this kind of thirst. Um, Some, for a long time, that uh, they've been running dry, spiritually dry, relationally dry, um, just vocationally or or meaning in life, purpose, dry. 
and, and know some of their thirst or even just see their own sin and recognize their need of a Savior but not realizing that your grace is so abundantly sufficient to overcome all of their sin, all of their rebellion, all of all of our cumulative depravity you've overcome with your love and with your grace. And so help us uh, lay hold of these promises you've given in these chapters. Uh, not, not foolishly and not, not misappropriating them to mean things you're not meaning, but um, in a way that we really long to be satisfied and we were only made to be satisfied in you and that we would actually look to you for that satisfaction. Thank you for, for giving it to us for free. We can never earn that. We can never achieve it. We thank you, so help us to lay hold of it and not hold back. We want to come and um, oh, really celebrate at your table all that you have done for us. We do look forward to that uh, city that's to come. We do look forward to that really culmination of, of joy um, in the new heavens and new earth. But help us have that joy now, uh, that promise of joy of knowing you, where there is lack of joy, uh, where there has been seeking things and not finding them. Um, my request is you would help us to seek you and find our true satisfaction in you. We thank you that you're faithful, that you fulfill all of your promises in your time. We thank you for sending Jesus and that um, as he came, um, he did live a life pleasing to you. He did accomplish everything he set out to do and he did return to you in glory. And what a wonderful God we have. You achieve everything that you set out to do. We're great beneficiaries of that. We glorify you for that. We thank you for that. We are grateful for that. I let your spirit have his full uh, way and work in our lives in bringing us into the likeness of Jesus, having our identity and our hope anchored in him and having our every thirst satisfied in the living water that is him. And we ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.